With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Crime Watch Daily Podcast, a daily podcast on the latest serious crimes around the U.S. Now, here's your host, Dr. Carlos. Welcome back, everyone. Well, hey, Andy, how are you doing? I'm doing good, Carlos. How are you? Not too shabby. Well, it's been a little while since we've gotten together. And folks, we're going to do some other interesting clips. You can find a lot of this. If you're watching us on YouTube, go to Andy's playlist. And you'll see some great uh, stuff that we've done already that you might be finding interesting. Former FBI profiler and forensic psychologist. You'll see one of those. Um, the playlist, of, of course, Andy's got his top 10 on there. So you can find more information on that. And I know we're going to be doing another segment soon on um, we're going to be looking at, at closed criminal cases and we're going to get your take on them and what happened. So I'm always excited to hear that. And I know there's and we're always interested, always interested in topics that people want to hear about. If there's a, an old uh, crime you'd like us to analyze, um, we can certainly do that. And, and basically what we add uh, is the, the psychological component, the social component. The behavioral aspects of, uh, of crime. That's what we're going to talk about today, right? Motivation of crime. It's a beautiful segue. Yeah, because I know we were talking about the motivation of crime, and you have a system. I forgot what it's called. It's called PEPS, and we developed it while I was at the Behavioral Science Unit, the FBI Academy. And uh, we were looking at our perpetrator motive um, in crimes. Why do people commit crimes? How are they motivated to commit crimes? What we found, interestingly enough, is that there, there's a taxonomy. There's a there are categories, four different types of categories um, that people uh, commit crime based on these motives. And, and, and they're an, oftentimes an amalgam. So it's difficult to say a percentage in terms of these different categories. And there are some subsets in these categories. And you can develop structured professional judgment tools that help or assist an investigator or an analyst kind of really mine down as to the motive of an individual when they behave, and in this case, behave criminally. Are there overlaps? I'm sorry? Are there overlaps on the categories, like PEPs? Yeah, because the the, the, the PEPs model really explains human motivation for uh, decision-making, you know, for the cognitive process. So these are the motives people have for behaving, but they can also explain motives for criminal behavior. So there's really the distinction between behaviors is one has been deemed unlawful, by society, right? It's society that decides what is the rules of behavior in any given society. Speeding, for example, stealing, for example. And we can get into, you know, argument and debate as to, you know, inalienable rights and God's law versus man's law. But what we really focus in any society around the world today are the rules by which the relationship is formed. In this case, society's relationship with man. So, there are a number of reasons why people break these man-made rules. And the, the acronym, as I've mentioned, is called PEPs, but it, it stands for personal motives, economic motives, 
power base slash political. So P, the, the second P is uh, power or political because pol politics is power. Right? And then uh, social, social motives. Now, to be a, a terrorist, for example, a terrorist crime has to satisfy two elements. It has to be either politically motivated or socially motivated. It cannot be economically motivated or personally motivated. Okay, and that's by the, the man-made rules that define terrorism. So the definition for terrorism is um, any behavior. Uh, the, actually, the, the, the DOJ definition is a violence against people or property to coerce a government or a segment of the population in furtherance, and here's where the motive comes in, in furtherance of political or social objectives. So... If I were to go in, say, Steve Paddock into a hotel and I'm going to take an automatic rifle and I shoot 500 people, kill, I think he killed somewhere around 57 people in, in the Las Vegas shooting. But his motive is not in furtherance of a political uh, goal or a social goal. He's not doing it to change you know, the laws in, in Las Vegas or the United States. And it's not considered terrorism. So it wasn't worked as a terrorist investigation. His motive was unknown, but principally it's speculated it was personal anger and economic. He had lost a lot of money in uh, gambling. And so his anger had built up because of his terrible losses financially. And he literally, you know, went off the reservation and shot a bunch of people. So that was not considered terrorism because it didn't satisfy those two elements. Same thing is true with Joe Stack, who flew an airplane into a building in Austin, Texas. And then the, the one we, you and I talked about a couple weeks ago, the uh, RV bomber in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, his motive appears to be personal. He wanted to commit suicide in a spectacular way. And so uh, this spectacular suicide phenomenon uh, is like it's 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 a relative to the uh, cop suicide by cop, where they want to go out in a blaze of glory, but it's a personal motivation. So what I would offer the, the audience is, if you look at a crime and you look at it as a you know amateur sleuth, always when you're defining the motive of the individual, look at it from what possible personal motivations would they have. What possible economic? And sometimes it's really easy. Some guy goes and robs a bank. And, you know, I think it was Willie Sutton, a famous bank robber, was once asked, "Why do you rob banks?" And he said, "That's where the money is." So if you you if you're committing crime because of economics, it's fairly simple. Uh, the motive. Uh, it gets a little uh, more difficult. And sometimes when you're talking about personal or political and or social, you know, a lot of people commit crimes for the group, right? So. We saw people storm the Capitol uh, a couple weeks ago, right? And they did it for the group, you know, for the masses. They're the patriots, right? And um, so we can identify how these individuals um, make the reasoned decision. I'm a rational choice theorist. So I believe people who commit crimes go through a cost benefit, either consciously or subconsciously, uh, either cognitively or emotionally. They go through this process and sometimes very quick. So you could be a uh, protester, peaceful protester in Washington, D.C. at the, you know, uh, Stop the Steal rally. No intention of committing any crimes because you're there peacefully. And then the mob gets you riled up, right? You get so emotionally involved that you become, it's called de-individualization. 
you lose your, your personal identity for the larger mass. So now your motive for going in the capital is because everybody did. The group did. It's a social motive that led you to that crime. Doesn't erase the fact that it's a crime because man created laws that you violated. And we're talking about motives for those violations. Does that make know, sense? Yeah, it does. And I know we're gonna be looking at a lot of the cases in our new segment as well. Um, we're gonna be looking at some of these theories. I think that's what I wanted to do a little bit too is, um, is look at some of the different cases in, in the last, I don't wanna to go too far back, but maybe in the last 10 or 15 years and apply the PEPS model get your insight, uh, psychological insight, as well as legal insight. Uh, we'll look at some of these cases uh, that have happened. We know we looked already at folks at the Chris Watson and the Peterson case. You can find that yeah. on the playlist, or you can find it on our YouTube channel. You can also follow us if you're listening to us on the uh, podcast. Um, you can also follow us there as well. Uh, it's yeah, with uh Former FBI profiler Andrew Bringle. I'm sorry. Yeah, Scott Peterson and one or two interesting ones because they were both, you know, sociopathic and uh, motivated both by personal and power. So it's interesting if you look, and, and this might be of interest to our audiences, they go through the Netflix style. If you look at some of the documentaries on Ted Bundy and uh, the Night Stalker and a number of these, you know, uh, these serial killers, BDK killer, Dennis Rader, well, what are the commonalities? Let's look at the Peterson case. Can we look at the Peterson and Watts case we'll do, through the PEPS model for a minute? Or? Yeah, we abs- I think we did when we, when we analyzed those cases in the past, but we could certainly do it again today. But my point is going to be that when, when people are engaged in a relationship, there are two things. We've talked about this in the past as well. Uh, there's another element that's brought in. We talked about the boundaries that society puts in place, right? Rules, these laws, as we call them, in social contract theory. Um, that bind the society together. But even in a primary relationship, husband, wife, girlfriend, boyfriend, you, you form rules or, or um, a baseline of expectations. Right? So this baseline of expectations or expected behaviors becomes the de facto law, if you will, of your family, your family rule or family law. And when there's a breach of that rule, of that of that. Um, family um, implicit or explicit expectation of behavior, you have a diminished amount of trust in that relationship. And as a result, there'll be an increased amount of control. So all relationships, whether it's, you know, the the society in in total or a very intimate relationship between a girlfriend, boyfriend, man, wife, um, they're predicated on two things that balance that relationship, and that is trust and control. What we find with uh, serial killers and sociopaths is they have a very high need for controlling those relationships. The, the one, you know, without t- using the term profile, because we, we, you know, FBI uh, agents don't profile, we, an- we analyze behavior, it's behavioral analysis events. Um, and the behavioral science unit, where I was at before I transferred to the behavioral analysis unit, same processes. Right? We analyze the behavior, but one of the common things we look for among serial killers is that uh, affect of control in a relationship. So when we see crime scenes where there appears to be a high level of control over the victim, 
then that's one of the indicators that we might be dealing with somebody who is sociopathic and perhaps a serial killer. Does that make sense? Yeah, it was reminding me that there was a serial killer they just found the other day. Um, and I think, I forgot, he was shooting, he was killing elderly people in a care home. And I think he had killed three or four. Um, it's very difficult for a sociopath. It's, it's very difficult for them to feel uh, empathy. They, they can feign um, emotion very well, but they, they have a, a hard time of genuinely feeling empathetic towards another human. And that uh, imbalance in their psyche um, allows them to use and exert high, very high levels of control over a victim. In fact, what, what, gives them oftentimes sexual release is exerting that level of control over the victim at the point of their death or shortly after their death. Uh, and they, they are, feel empowered, euphoric even, uh, at that point. And that seems to be a common thread among most, if not all, serial killers that, that we studied. Yeah, and that's one thing I wanted to highlight for the audience, if I could too, because remember folks, psychopathy runs on a spectrum. So there's different degrees of psychopathy. Now, some argue nowadays that psychopaths have no empathy, while sociopaths do have empathy. There's the distinction between those two, and that continues to be debated. Yeah. Um, but I just throw it out there for everybody to, you know, yeah, and and the arguments the bureau, are out there. Yeah, at, at the Bureau, we don't distinguish between psychopaths and you sociopaths. Don't? No, yeah. they're, they're the same. And we use uh, Hare's, um, Hare's scale. Oh, checklist, the PCL? Checklist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a good good um, it's a good assessment because it definitely tells you the great the uh, spectrum. So if you're under if you if you have a friend who's over thirty on the PCL, I would look for a new friend. I just you know that's just my opinion. But well, you know what's that's a good point. But uh, it's also <laughs> it's funny because what science has shown us in in uh, in the research is that just because you're a sociopath does not necessarily mean you're a criminal. Again, we we talked about. You're a criminal when you violate these rules of behavior, the baseline of expected norms in a society, right? So uh, I often said in my lectures, good people make bad decisions and bad people make good decisions. It's quite possible for a bad person to make a good decision, just as it's really possible for a good person to speed or maybe have a couple drinks and then drive home. Bad decision, right? You get picked up DWI and end up in you know a, a, a courtroom. That's a bad decision, but it's a decision nonetheless. Some people say, well, there are cases where a person has no real choice. Right? Uh, the classic one a police officer once gave me was uh, a kid growing up in Compton has to choose between joining the Bloods or the Crips. They don't, their environment determines their choice. And I argued, I pushed back on that. I said, no, you, you, can, tr- you can speak uh, truth to power. You could say, I don't want to be. Uh, a crip or a blood. Now, at your own peril, admittedly, because now you could be, um, you know, violence could be uh, coming to you from both sides, the bloods and the crips, but but ultimately it is your choice. And not to say that there aren't some very, very difficult choices that people have to make. But I think if we took the, the, the position that we're ultimately responsible for the choices we make, then I think we'd be much better off in, in terms of making better choices going forward. I can add something to that too. I've heard that argument as well. And it's, um, 
you know, I've talked to some gang experts, I've talked to criminologists, and every time I've asked the question, what's the percentage of individuals who live in areas with high gang activity that become gang members? Because I, I can't imagine every single male, we'll just use males in this example, because they're yeah. primarily males in, in gangs. Uh, there are females, of course, and there's that's another story, but primarily males. Um, the highest estimate I've ever heard, even from gang experts in LA who worked the department for 20 years, said 20%, 15%. Yeah. So let's say they're well, off and it's only 30. You still have 70% who made that third choice that you mentioned, because right. you get these people who sometimes get locked in when, when the political world calls the Hobson choice, right? It's either that or this, that's the end of it. And that's right. that dichotomous thinking is very problematic. You make a great right. point. No, and that's, a, that's a great point uh, that you're making. I, I think that, you know, we see that 20%, right? 20% is always, you know, makes up 80% of the problems. In our in our communities, that twenty eighty always comes back up, and and you see that even in small towns where you have you know uh, recidivists, you have people that you know commit acts criminal acts, maybe it's uh, domestic violence, and then you know six months later, a year later, they're picked up for DUI, then you know another six months later, they're picked up for having weed, you know, and and the, you see these people cycle through. These are bad people making bad choices, right? Continuously and. Society would like to make you know good people out of them and prove their choices, but unfortunately, there's no real mechanism in the penal system to assist people to make better choices, cognitive choices, or they're emotionally damaged, right? And and so the, their emotional damage makes it difficult for them to have a high intellect, uh, high enough intellect to make good cognitive choices, and so they they're impulsive and they make choices out of out of uh, you know out of uh, impulse and uh, and then they end up making bad choices again and again. You know, you reminded me of something. I had a conversation earlier today with another guest, uh, two guests, um, Stacy Straubel and Nikki Phillips, both professors of criminology. Folks, you can catch it if you want later on in Forensic Psychology Podcast or uh, Psychology of Superheroes and Villains, because they wrote a book called Comic Book Crime. And it was interesting because we talked about the Joker. <laughs> and yeah. what they were saying is, right, everything you're saying reminds me a lot because they're saying that comic books are geared towards rational choice theory. And yeah. what they stay away from is the comic. We talked about this before you and I. It's, it's the, the comic books stay away from the narrative of rehabilitation. They're all about incapacitation. <laughs> yeah. And that That's doesn't true. even work for them either because every time they go to jail, they come right back out. And um, I'm still trying to figure out why there's never FBI in comic books. For some reason, they just they don't exist. You know, it's always local law enforcement eating a donut, but there's never like FBI floating around. Um, I'm trying to think if I've ever seen the FBI, maybe in a Superman comic once. But uh, yeah, oh, you're right. They're, they're not. They're not. You guys don't exist. And I think they're just kind of generic feds. I think I think you see them or the local cops. Of course, you know, uh, Gotham is, you know, the backdrop for New York. What about the so. Joker? Did you see that movie? I have not seen the Joker. Is that the one with uh, Phoenix? Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I, I have not seen That'd be a good one to look it. at Is the model. Yeah, it's a great psychological uh, movie. Um, yeah. I think that's what was so different about it because I think people could not relate. In some aspects you could, but you could really understand the Joker. The old Cesar Romero from Adam West, I think, was a, was more of a caricature of that villain you couldn't really associate with. But this one, you know, he had problems, and they obviously used some of the diagnoses from DSM-4, or DSM five, I think DSM five. Yeah. Was made. But um, anyway, I was going to see if you could the do actor, the, the actor, was, the actor was was jo is it Joaquin John Phoenix? Phoenix? 
Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'll have to watch it. I, I know it's been out for a while, probably on Netflix yeah. or, or Prime or something. I'll have to look at it. Yeah, because that'd be a good analysis. And I know we're going to be looking at a case in a little bit, um, so you can catch that other episode too, folks. We're going to be looking at a very unusual case of a CEO of a peanut corporation who got 28 years for... An economically motivated decision, right? His, his oh, don't decision. Give away was... the, don't give away already. <laughs> okay. We're going well, to analyze it with the PEPS model as well as other things. You definitely want to stay tuned for that. Yeah, you know, what's interesting too in terms of the PEPS model is it's, it's not, it doesn't live in a bubble, right? Uh, the PEPS model, uh, the, the motivations of behavior uh, are also influenced by what the, the psychologists refer to as context, right? Time and space, the environment that we live in. We mentioned briefly mentioned that uh, earlier, and, and humans uh, are made up of three dimensions, right? Our, we have our biological dimension, right, the physiological self, and um, and, and, and that science they call it homeostasis, right? That you're looking, your body is trying to balance itself, and you, you have all kinds of examples of that in, in, in physiology and, psych- and and biology. But then you have psychology, and and, and you're trying mental health to be balanced as well, right? So in, in psychology, you're, you're looking for balanced mental health. You don't want to be too high emotionally, too low emotionally. And uh, oftentimes our behavior is influenced by our psychology, our psyche, how, how we see the world uh, through our personality and, and our outlook. And then the third is sociology, right? The groups we, uh, we find ourselves in. Now, we may you know, choose bad friends. We may be in environments where there's not really a lot of good choices, but the reality is that those groups do shape us. You know, it's the, if you sleep with dogs, you're going to get fleas. Edwin Sutherland's uh, (laughs) deferential association, you know, says that, yeah, you're going to adopt the behaviors of the people around you. They're going to become your social norms. So if you hang around. Right. Right. And that's the social component of pets. So, the, the reality is that those motivations, those personal motivations, those economic motivations, even the power-based and social-based motivations oftentimes come from who we are biologically, psychologically, and sociolo- sociologically um, in the context of the environments that we put ourselves in. So in my classes, I talk about how can we control this, this ecology, right? Uh, the way we do that is by promoting pro-social environments that promote behavior with positive intent. The, the kernel of, uh, you know, of uh, behavior, if you're going to look for the seed of behavior in humans, um, it, it develops well before the PEPS model. It's, it's the concept of intent. And so if, if, uh, if you can identify your intent as positive or negative, benevolent or malevolent, then everything springs from that. Everything grows from that intent. If my intent, being the joker, is to commit crimes and do evil in disregard of society's rules, well, then the only way to control me is by society using a high level of control to get me to comply, right? Because there's a very little, there's going to be very little trust in that relationship. And so, what you end up having, interestingly enough, in areas where there's a high level of, of lack of predictability of behavior against the rules that man puts in place, the laws, is a higher police presence. And why is that? Because you need the higher level of control 
to maintain stability and balance in that environment. And there's a very, there's a very low level of public trust. So it's not surprisingly, if you think uh, in these terms, why there's a lack of trust um, among the population in inner city high crime areas and the police. It's because there's a lack of predictability as it relates to the laws, therefore higher police presence and the higher police presence represents a higher level of control to maintain stability and balance in that community. I think it's a great model. It really gets the ball rolling and gets you thinking. Now we're gonna be out of time now, but we're gonna get ready to head over to our other uh, take from the FBI profiler here, Andrew Ringel. You can find him at Behavioral Science Unit, LLC.com. So make sure you check that out, Behavioral Science Unit, LLC.com. Andy, thanks again for the time. Yep, enjoy it. Always a great a great day. You too, my check friend. Check out the website. Check out the website, folks, and check out Andy's playlist if you're watching us on YouTube. Or if you go to YouTube, check out Andy's playlist as well on the Dr. Carlos Show uh, YouTube channel. You can see Andy's playlist there with the rest of the episodes that we did. We did a great one on Chris Watson-Peterson and some other things. The Nashville bombing is also on there. We talked about that. You can also check out our podcast, Inside the Criminal Mind, with former FBI profiler Andrew Brinkle. Thanks for listening, everybody. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.